Welcome! You're listening to audio of Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. At ICC, we are being transformed by Jesus to impact our world. Wherever you are as you listen today, we want you to know that we love and appreciate you. We're so glad you're here. We hope today's message will help you grow in relationship with Jesus. You can access more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church at iccmemphis.com. Thanks again for joining us. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you guys this morning. I'm Barrett, one of the pastors here, and uh, welcome to ICC. If you're new this morning, a special welcome to you. Incredibly grateful that you're here. Open your Bible to the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, This morning, we're going to continue our series, uh, Redeeming Grace, and our study of the book of 2 Samuel. I am really excited to be able to do that together today. Um, Today's message is called Longing for Grace, Marveling at Our Savior Jesus. Marveling at Jesus, Longing for Grace. We started this study last week uh, together, and uh, it really is a continuation of the series that we were in together uh, in the spring. We went through 1 Samuel together, and now we begin the journey in 2 Samuel together. And last week we saw as the story begins to shift from Saul to David, and we see a real turning point in the nation of Israel in their national history. But I told you last week, we got to remember that the turning point is not really all because of David, okay? We're tempted to make uh, David the hero of the story, but in reality, um, we know David does have a heart for God. We know he has a heart to lead people after God's heart, but we also know that David is pretty messed up. Anybody here messed up? Pretty broken. David deals with conflict, David has tons of personal sin, David has family trouble, and yet the story is focused on David, but the real focus on the story is not really David, the focus is on God. Because what made David different than Saul was not that he was a better person, but he was willing to be dependent on a Savior, Jesus, and let him redeem. We talked about last week the theme of 2 Samuel. One of the main parts of the theme is that God is faithful to redeem his people, and to fulfill his covenant of grace. I hope you'll find a way to take notes this morning. As always, I encourage you to because I think it's always helpful. But we did begin last week talking about how this book is ultimately about the faithfulness of God, about the redemption of God, and about the grace of God. And ultimately, friends, if we are to have any hope, it's going to be because we are putting all of our trust in God and his faithfulness, and his redemption, and his grace toward us in Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, like I said, we're going to be looking at um, the continuation of where we were last week. So we're going to be starting in chapter 2, verse 8. So if you just remember, um, we were last week looking at the reality of the tragedy of Saul and his death. And we saw at the beginning part of chapter 2 that David now has begun to be recognized as the rightful ruler, but he's only been recognized as the rightful ruler among one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Judah. And now today in the passage, we get to see what's next. But I do want to tell you, it seems to get worse (laughs) before it gets better. But I really... Um, before I start reading this passage, and it's a long passage today, and I know sometimes in long passages our minds tend to wander, and we also begin to wonder, um, what is this all about and what does it have to do with me? And I just want to go and say before I read the passage today that I was preparing for this message, and I thought, God, thank you that you have led us to this passage at this time and this place in our lives, but also in our world's history. Because I don't know about y'all, but like, Good gracious. Um, You know the song that Andrew Peterson wrote, Is He Worthy? The first line of the song? Do you feel the world is broken? We do, right? Anybody in these last few weeks just gone, dang, the world is broken? Anybody? Yeah. I mean, No matter where you get your news, whether it's cable or internet or social media, I mean, looking at pictures like this one of hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people packing onto planes, trying to get out because of terrorists overtaking their land. 
Do you feel the world is broken? Do we do? Seeing people hanging on to wings of planes? I mean, how desperate would you have to be? And just the gut-wrenching nature of the brokenness of all of that. Even in our home state this past week, many of you guys have been affected. Uh, we've had many people reach out to us and ask what we can do and asking specifically about this, which is the floods that have been happening in Tennessee. Just suddenly, you know, water rising, overtaking homes, lots of people dying. Even right now at this moment, if you paid attention to the news this morning, uh, last night I got back in from Serbia with our team and around midnight I was on the interstate heading back from the airport to my house. Whole line of cars with Louisiana license plates on them, right? Because right now at this moment, hurricane barreling toward the coast. People freaking out, storm of a century, you know, one of those things. And it's just like, do you feel the world is broken? We do, right? And I think we've had so many people reaching out and we've all been talking about this together because all these things come on top of what we've already been struggling with. Many of us know, right, the pandemic that's been raging. And it's not just the pandemic in and of itself, the disease, but the responses to it and the conflicts and the tensions and the exhaustion and the fatigue. Many people in our church have been added to a special prayer list that we as pastors are reaching out to and trying to care for right now. Our health professionals are at their at just wit's end, doing all they can to serve and complete, completely exhausted while doing it. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. And then not only that, but what comes after that is, y'all been on Facebook lately? Let me just go and give you a warning. If you haven't, don't go, okay? It's just better to stay off. Because the most mundane thing suddenly starts conflicts and wars, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Everybody got opinion about everything. And I'm just like, whoo, this is a lot. You got people out our suburbs of our city and other places protesting the recommendation of city leadership and government leadership to wear masks saying that it's child abuse or even equating it to another conflict in our country that probably all of us forgot because of Afghanistan and the floods and the hurricanes and COVID and that was I can't breathe. What many in our country, what we were wrestling with over the past year. Listen friends, it has been a year. If you feel tired, you get to. It has been a year. Can I get a witness? Do you feel the world is broken? We do. The next line says, do you feel the shadows deepen? And some days we have to admit, our response is what? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new. It's the question I want to ask you this morning. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Are we at a point right now that you could say honestly, man, I just wish that I could see it all made new? Anybody there? I believe probably many of us, if not most of us, are there. We do. That's why this morning... I believe this message, this passage is so important for us because what we're going to be talking about today is longing for grace. If you've got your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 8, I'm going to read through the end of chapter 4. It's a long passage. It's an important story. It's all God's Word, true and relevant for us. And so I hope you'll listen to it with interest, with desire to really understand what's going on and ultimately to draw a conclusion that will help us know more of God. Starting in verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanam. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. 
And Joab, the son of Jeriah, and the servants of David went and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. And then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and twelve for the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side so that they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. And now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he neither turned to the right hand nor to the left hand from following Abner. Well, then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn from following him. And Abner again said to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to that place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gaia in the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. And Abner and his men went all that night through Arabah, they crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Maenim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when they had gathered all the people together, they were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men, and they took up Asahel, and they buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Chapter 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And the sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Caleb the, of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third was Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith, and the fifth, Shephetah, son of Abital, and sixth, Ethrim of El Egla, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Ritzpah, and the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone to my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet, you charge, excuse me, house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and his friends and have not given you to the hand of David. And yet, you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. 
And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be upon you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I'll make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her for, from her husband, Patiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Barum. And Abner said to him, Go and return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and I'll go and gather all Israel to the Lord the king that they may make covenant with you, that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with them was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away and had gone in peace. Now when Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told to Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he's let him go, and he's gone in peace. Well, then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you've sent him away so that he's gone? You know that Abner, the, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. When Joab came from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sarah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died. For the blood of Asahel, his father, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord, for the blood of Abner and the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put a sackcloth on and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier and buried, they buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me, and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it. And it pleased them, as everything that the king did all pleased all the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men and the sons of Zariah are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Chapter 4, verse 1. 
When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Banah, and the name of the other, Rechab, the sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Beruth. For Beruth is also counted part of Benjamin. The Berethites fled to Githim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Ramon... The Berethite, Rechab and Bana, set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bedroom, they struck him, and they put him to death, and they beheaded him. They took his head, and they went away by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And we said to the king, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversary, adversity. When he told me, behold, Saul is dead and, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more? When wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I now not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed him and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and they buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. This is God's word. Longing for grace. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Uh, I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I get to places in the Bible like this and I go, gee, willikers. That's something you say in Georgia. I don't know if y'all say it where you're from. And you go, wow, like, good gracious, what a mess. Anybody? Sometimes we get to passages like this and we're, we're tempted to, like, just skip over it because we're literally, like, I don't have an enemy to like read that kind of stuff right now. Anybody there? Or I don't even know that I, I, I have no idea what's going on, much less what in the world this has to do with me. What am I supposed to learn about this? What am I supposed to do with this? Has anybody ever read passages like this and wondered, right? I have too. This morning, what I want to do is briefly talk about what's going on in the passage itself, and then I want to help you understand what I believe we are to do with passages like this, and not just passages like this, but times that we're living in right now like this that this passage represents. The first thing I want to do is just summarize what's going on in the passage itself. If you get, look at your Bible, verse 1 of chapter 3, sometimes in the Scripture, the Bible gives us great summary statements at times. The writers go out of their way to help us understand what's really happening in the big picture of what's going on in the details. Verse 1 of chapter 3 is really helpful for us because essentially what you see is as soon as David gets the opportunity to become the recognized leader among one of the tri uh, tribes of Judah, which is, or Israel, which is Judah, okay? As soon as that happens, right? Remember David? He's the one that's been anointed the next king of all of Israel, God had taken the kingdom from Saul after his rebellion and hard-heartedness toward the Lord. He had taken the kingdom from Saul and also Saul's family, and he had chosen, this is God now, in his will. He had made it very clear that the next king would be David, and David has been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting upon the Lord for the day that God would make good on his promise. Saul dies, but 
after Saul's death, only one of the 12 tribes turned to David to recognize him as king. And what you see here in these chapters that we're studying today is a power struggle for the kingdom of Israel. Verse 1 of chapter 3 is a good summary because it says there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. So what's happening in these chapters is you've got people who were Saul's family and Saul's friends and Saul's commanders who are going, you know, we've heard this thing about David becoming the next king, but we're going to do everything we can to stop that. And we're going to keep the power. We're going to keep it with Saul's family. And they basically put themselves against not just David, but really against what God is wanting to do. And what you're looking at in this chapter is an Old Testament version of some of what you're kind of looking at in Afghanistan today. You're looking at a tribe coming against another tribe. You're looking at a civil war. You're looking at tons of conflict and bloodshed in order to have the right to rule. One of the things you need to know is there's three main characters in the story, okay? You probably picked up on their names, but I want to make sure everybody knows who the people are because it's going to be important. You've got a guy named Abner. Now, Abner is Saul's cousin, okay? He's Saul's cousin, but he's also the commander of Saul's army. You might remember Abner is the guy who brought David to King Saul and the whole story of David and Goliath. He's right there in all the story. Abner is right there with King Saul, chasing David down, trying to kill David, trying to look for him, trying to figure out where he is to, to put out the threat to the, to the throne. Abner is a key player with Saul all through 1 Samuel that we studied. You go back and you can look at it. So that's the guy here in this story too. And Abner is a power-hungry guy. He wants power. Abner is about himself, and he's about power. And you see that because he's willing to do pretty much anything and everything. He flips sides in the middle of the story, but the flipping of sides is not about the people he's flipping toward as much as about himself. Second character in the story is a guy named Joab. Now, Joab is the nephew of David. David has three nephews. And all of these nephews are brothers. Okay, you've got Abishai and Asahel and Joab. Okay? Joab, though, among the brothers, is the commander of David's army. So he's got kind of the equal role to Abner on David's side. Tracking? Then the third character is this guy named Ishbosheth. Now, Ishbosheth is Saul, King Saul, who's just died, his biological son. So Ishbosheth is being set up to be the, what Abner's trying to do is set him up to be the next king over all Israel and saying, well, because he's the son of Saul, he should be the next king. But even though we know God's taken the kingdom away, not only from Saul, but Saul's family and given it to a new person, David, and a new tribe, Judah. So those three characters, really important. And one of the things you need to know about Ishbosheth, and you see this through the story, Ishbosheth seems like a pretty weak guy. I'm not just mean physically, but also like he, he's afraid. And it seems real obvious as you read the narrative that he's being used as like a puppet at the hands of his commander, Abner, and people around him. Now, I'm going to give you a brief outline of what's going on, just in case. I'm not trying to demean your intelligence because I know you're all great at reading comprehension. But just to make sure we're all in the same story and just so that we can see how broken the situation really is. As you go through the story, verse 8 through 11 of chapter 2, what you see is right at the onset, Abner goes, uh-uh-uh, we ain't making David the king. We're going to set this up ourselves. And he immediately begins to reject David's leadership and he leads the other 11 tribes of Israel to reject David's leadership. He sets up Ishbosheth as the rightful leader. Well, that leads into verses 12 to 17, where what we end up with is Abner actually challenging David's army. Similar to what we saw with the Israelites coming face to face with the Philistines, with David and Goliath's story. They were across from each other, sending men out into the middle going, let's see who can win this battle. And what we see is here in chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, they're challenging one another again, and all these young men going out, and it's just massive bloodshed. 
innocent people for an attempt of power being slaughtered. Do you feel the world is broken? <laughs> we do. In verses 18 to 23, what we see is after, one of, after the challenge, uh, one day uh, Abner is leaving, but David's nephew, Asahel, decides that he's going to uh, pursue Abner. He wants to kill him. He hates the guy. And Abner obviously doesn't want to kill this guy because he's afraid of Joab, this guy's brother, right? Joab's the commander of David's army. And he's trying, hey, dude, stop. Just turn to the right, turn to the left, pick up spoils from some other person that's already dead. Let's don't do this. And yet he would not stop pursuing Abner. And in self-defense, what we see is that Abner ends up killing one of David's nephews. So broken. In verses 24 to 32, what we recognize is that in the midst of this ongoing conflict, that Abner finally says, hey, let's stop this. Like, this is not getting better. Like, let's stop fighting for, for crying out loud. Like, how many more people have to die before we recognize this is not going anywhere? And Joab knows David's heart for peace David's heart to wait upon the Lord and not take things in their own hands, and he agrees with the truce. Well, after the truce, we get to chapter 3, and what begins to happen, verses 6 through 11, what we begin to see is this conflict brewing between Abner, who is the commander of Ishbosheth's army, and Ishbosheth himself. Ishbosheth confronts him over something that he didn't appreciate. Abner took one of Saul's concubines. Abner's like, Who are you to tell me about this? I'm the one that's basically made you king, dude. Like, don't you understand this? And he's like, I'll, I'll show you. You come against me. I'm going to turn the whole thing over away from you and give it to David. David's the one who's been promised the kingdom anyway. You forget you. I'm going over here. And what we see is that Abner literally decides then to defect to David. It freaks Ishbosheth out because, again, Ishbosheth really, I don't think, ever had the power in himself. It was Abner who was propping him up as king. You go to verses 12 to 21 of chapter 3, and what we see is that Abner negotiates for David. He begins sending correspondence with David and saying, hey, I will bring you the other 11 tribes. I'll do that for you. I just want you to make a covenant with me. Like, I want, to, I want you to, to promise me that, like, we're going to be good. And if you do that, then I'll bring you the rest of the kingdom. And David's going, well... One way you can show me that that's legit is you can bring me back my wife that now has been given away to another man, one of Saul's daughters. And uh, so Abner figures out a way to do that. And essentially what begins to happen is Abner now moves from Saul's side, Ishbosheth's side, over to David's side. And David negotiates with him to the point that he makes peace. Well, as soon as that happens, as the chapter 3 continues... Verses 22 to 25, what we realize is that as Joab, David's nephew, commander of the army, gets back from one of his battles helping David in the kingdom somewhere else, he hears, hey, dude, Abner was just here at the castle, man. And he's gone out and he's got peace with David. And Joab's like, what? This is the dude that killed my brother. This is the dude that's been chasing us. This is the dude that stood against this whole moment. Like, what in the world? What is he thinking? And not only does he feel that on the inside, but he lashes out at David. What are you doing, dude? Completely dishonoring David, disrespecting David. See, one of the things that happens here is all of this stuff is conflict. In the podcast that uh, will be released tomorrow, Transform for Impact, I'll talk to you in the podcast about how to deal with conflict God's way. It's not the point of the message today because I don't want to use this message to help us become better people, but I want to use this message to point us to Jesus. But I do believe that what you can see is that Joab was not dealing with conflict God's way. Joab had a heart of retaliation and a heart of revenge, and he was not willing to release the outcome of his conflicts to God. He took it into his own hands and Joab begins to stand up to David and completely reproaches him. What we see in the next verses in 26 and 27 of chapter 3 is that as soon as he goes out from David's presence, he goes, forget David, I'm taking this in my own hands. He sends a message to Abner saying, hey, you should come back. David wants you. David knew nothing about it. Take it to his own hands. Abner gets back. 
Joab goes, hey, I want to talk to you privately. Pulls him aside in private and then kills him. Do you feel the world is broken? <laughs> we do. The aftermath of Abner's death, verses 28 to 39, is that David cries out. Just like with Saul, you might go, why is David upset? This guy was his enemy. It's because David had never wanted to take things into his own hands. David had wanted to entrust himself to the Lord and let the Lord th bring things about. And David is absolutely destroyed that this has happened. He can't stand that this has happened. It's not God's way. He mourns for the things that were good in Abner, and he leads the people to mourn, and he honors Abner. Well, then you get to chapter 4. And just when you think things might get better, it actually gets worse. Because you get to chapter 4, and you look over at what's happening with Ishbosheth, Saul's son. And what we see there, the passage we just read, is all of a sudden two dudes go, huh, similar to the guy that thought he could make David happy when he killed Saul. These two dudes are going, David's going to love this. Ishbosheth's a sitting duck. He doesn't have a general anymore. We're going to go and kill Ishbosheth, and we'll take his head to David, and he'll you know, reward us. He'll be happy. And Ishbosheth, you can see the disarray in their house, the fear. They're all fleeing. They're, they're freaking out because Abner, they know, has been killed. And in the midst of all of that, he gets approached by these two guys who turn on him in his own house, and he gets killed. The report gets back to David, and of course we see David's response. How could you? And David allowing the consequence to come to the guys who did what God not, did not want them to do. Friends, <laughs> do you feel the world is broken? We do. You see, today, and we're going to look at, we just went through what this passage is about but what I want to close with is what do we do with a passage like this in the Old Testament? What do we do with this story? And, and what do we do in the present brokenness of the messiness of the world? You guys, I don't know about you, but sometimes it just feels like the world is out of control. Y'all know what I'm talking about? It just feels like things are out of control. You've got Things like chaos. You've got conflict. You've got confusion. You've got division. Injustice. Oppression. war. And sometimes you look at passages like this, but also, friends, you just look at the world around us and you go, what is going to come out of this mess? Anybody ever wondered that? And you also sit and you wonder, who can fix it? I mean, honestly, like, who can fix this? Some of the stuff that just... Who can fix this? Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But the whole Old Testament is meant to be a setup. And one of the things that I want you to see in this passage today and to see for yourself today is that this passage is given to us so that we might see the ugliness of the outworkings of sin and brokenness in the world. And that ultimately, friends, that we might long for God's grace. That's why it's titled the message longing for God's grace. Because ultimately, friends, when you get to passages like this and you get to weeks where you see thousands of people packed on the planes, people holding off, some of our sons and daughters being shipped overseas in the midst of all of this brokenness, you see the hurricanes and the floods and the COVID and the conflicts and the fights and the demonstrations and you go, oh my word, 
when you get to places like this in the Bible and in your life, what God wants you to do is long for his grace. To get to a point of saying, oh God, would you help this mess? Oh God, would you come? Oh God, would you save? Oh God, would you help? Oh God, would you fix it? That's the point. We, don't, we shouldn't skip over just to get to the happy days because the point is for God to wake us up to see there is brokenness within us, yes, but also in our world, and we need his grace. And part of why this passage is so important is to help us see it, but also we have to know what to do with it. And what the Bible wants us to see, and that's why I love Andrew Peterson's song, because one of the lines, the next lines in his song, that he says, Do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? And it's a question. And it's a question for you. And it's a question for me. In the midst of dark places like this, in the midst of broken situations like this, do you know? That all the dark will not stop the light from getting through. And he goes on to ask the question in the song. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? I think the answer to that is yes. The way that God shines light in the darkness is in the Old Testament through the prophets. Because in the midst of all this chaos and confusion and conflict, oppression and justice and war... God says, do you know that all the darkness will not stop my light from getting through? And you have passages like in Isaiah chapter 9. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip over there. It's there in the Old Testament as well. You have passages like Isaiah chapter 9 where God comes and he says, are you longing for it all to be made new? And he says, this is speaking of a future day. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nathali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness you feel the shadows deepen. On them, a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Anybody ready for a time of world peace? ready for the end of conflict, confusion, oppression, injustice, war? Anybody longing for that day? Do you know that the darkness won't stop the light from getting through? There's coming a day, friends. You have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Do you know, do you long for his grace? For to us, how will this all happen? For to us, the prophet said, amidst the chaos and confusion and conflicts of the Old Testament, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Anybody tired of the governments of this world not getting it right? I don't care what party you're in. Each one is just disappointing as the other. None of them can fix it. Anybody ready for the government of Jesus? <laughs> and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this president, this king, won't be booted out of office. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
through the prophet. Do you see that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? With the promise of Jesus' coming, the answer is we do. The whole Old Testament is a setup. In the midst of chaos and confusion and conflict, it's meant to make us long for the day of Jesus. That's the whole point. To make us go, oh, how much we need God's grace, how much we need a salvation, a redemption, a righteousness, a justice, a peace, a a ruling of a true and godly leader. Oh, how much we need God. It's the whole point to, to, to long for his grace. And you get to passages like this, friends, and that's what you should be doing. You should be seeing that longing. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? And this longing, ultimately, friends, is meant to do this, it's to lead us to Jesus, to lead us to marvel at Jesus. For the people who heard the prophet Isaiah, the longing was meant to lead them to anticipate the day that God would bring an end to the craziness of the world by coming himself. A child is born, his name, mighty God, everlasting father, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, talking about Jesus. That's why when you get to passages like Luke chapter 2 in the scripture and you see unto this day in the city of David is born a child who is the Savior and you see what happens is the whole sky is filled with messengers basically saying God's the best. Glory to God in the highest. He's unbelievably amazing. There's no one like our God, for he has come. He has brought salvation. He has stepped into brokenness to bring his grace. He stepped into darkness to bring his light. He's fulfilled his promise. He's here. And on earth, what? Peace. Among those with whom he's pleased. It's not just there, but Jesus is I mean, Jesus' whole life demonstrated God stepping into the brokenness to bring redemption. You see that in his ministry. But you also see that in his teaching passages like from John chapter 14. When he teaches like in verse 27 and he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Ultimately, what he's talking about, friends, is peace with God. You can't experience the peace of God unless you have peace with God. Jesus came to bring peace. And the first peace that he came to bring is to restore you with God. To resolve the enmity that you have with God. To resolve the conflict and the confusion and the chaos between you and your Heavenly Father. Jesus came to live so that even though you have no record of perfect righteousness, there might be an opportunity for you to have that on the basis of what he has done for you. Though you have a record of sin and failure and guilt and shame, that on the cross that he would die so that he might forgive, completely take away that record from you, so that in his resurrection there would be newness of life for you, and that ultimately as you trust in him, that you have peace, true peace with God. Peace that's not dependent on circumstance. He says, look, you're going to have trouble in the world, but don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid because God, you know, is a God who has made peace with you and gives peace that surpasses understanding to guard your heart and your mind in Jesus. You knowing who he is and being right with him is peace. The Old Testament's longing for grace is realized in Jesus. But friends, if I'm honest with you guys, whew, these last few weeks, 
this whole last year, I know Jesus' peace within me, but I still long for his peace in our world. Y'all? <laughs> I, st- I mean, it's almost like we could change the words of the song. Do you, do you still wish that you could see it made new? <laughs> yes. Even in relationship with Jesus, like, I still long for it to be made new. Is creation still groaning? Yes, it is. I was sitting on the couch with Michelle, I guess it was last week, two weeks ago. It's about 9.30, the girls had gone to bed, and it was the first time, because we don't try to talk about all that's going on uh, while they've been, while they're awake. Um, certainly don't want to put it on the TV, but we were watching scenes out of Afghanistan. Many of you have seen some of those things. I put up one of those pictures earlier. A situation completely unbelievable, such a tragedy. I know, I know, okay, you can explain it away. Civil war dates thousands of generations before now. We can't fix all the problems in the world. No solution that's easy. It's just geopolitics. Okay, y'all can make those arguments. I think as a people of God, though, we get to look at faces on that plane and go, oh my gosh, that could be me. I get to look at little children watching tanks roll in their neighborhood, terrorists come back and take control of their city, and I get to see my children's faces and those little children's faces, and you can too, and just feel like your gut's punched. I can look at images and tell the women immediately are oppressed, covered over, barely visible on the streets. You can see the fear, the helplessness, and the hopelessness in people's faces, clinging onto airplanes at the airport. I'm getting live text messages from our partner, my friend here in Memphis, who's telling me live things going on in Afghanistan. My friend, please pray now. My friend's house surrounded by the Taliban. Please pray. We don't know what's going on. And it just feels like Dang. God, where? I need you, God. We need you. We need you, God. We long to see it all made new. This is not a movie. This is real life. These are real people. I can feel so frustrated at times and confused at times and burdened at times and disappointed at times and left with the question, who will fix this mess? It feels so stinking frustrated because some of us still think that the next president will get it right. And each president that comes behind, we go, dang, you know, no matter who your guy is, it's just constantly this realization. We have to realize as the people of God that the ultimate solution for world peace is never going to come from a human government. It's not going to come from a human leader. It's not to say government and leaders aren't important and used by God, but our hope is not governments and human leaders. God, we long to see this made new. It makes, made me think of Romans 8. Because in Romans 8 and verse 18 and beyond, there's a passage that relates to these moments in 2 Samuel 2-4, to in this moment in 2021. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, if you feel the world is broken, you're right. The Scripture says it is broken. Creation is is longing. It's crying out. The Old Testament, 2 Samuel 2-4, 2021, The creation, the world is crying out for a redemption that only God can bring. We need you, God. 
What do we do, friends, when we watch the stuff on TV? Some of us feel helpless, and we literally don't know what to do. We don't know how to handle it. What do we do? We just talk about it with each other? Do we just watch it and get paralyzed? Or we just turn it off and avoid it? What do we do? Here's what the Bible wants us to do. Long for Jesus. Long for Jesus. Because the passage concludes with verse 24 and says, For in this, we, in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for, for who hopes what he sees? But if we hope in what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In other words, friends, what we are to do as the people of God is even now that we know Jesus is coming, we know the fulfillment of his promise, we know his provision, his life, death, and resurrection, we know Jesus' peace. We also know, friends, that the end of the story was not his ascension. The end of the story will be his return to earth again. <laughs> and there is coming a day for those who long for grace and hope in Jesus that he will come again. And when he comes, he will make all things new. When he comes, he will bring a full Yes, we know it in part now, but friends, one day we will know it in full. We will know him face to face, and we will know his total reign over all things, a full and final restoration in the hearts of those who believe, and in our world, total. Is a new creation coming? It is is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst. It is. And is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to take Break the seal and open the scroll. Forgive my singing. But I don't care how you sing as much as does your heart cry. Who can fix this, God? Is there anybody who can fix this? That's the question. Is there anyone able? And the answer to the Bible is yes. The words of this lyric, and I'll close with this passage, is straight from Revelation chapter 5 the end of the story. And if you look in your Bibles at Revelation 5, 1 and beyond, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? In other words, who can fix this? Who can do it? Who can bring the full and final redemption? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. As we look around today, you might go, who could fix this? And we look around at all the possible human solutions and you go, there ain't nobody here that can do it. But the passage doesn't end there because it goes on to verse 5 and then it says, and one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is the crucified and resurrected Jesus, friends. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are your prayers, the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, Jesus to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. 
And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And then the elders fell down and worshiped. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to take, break the seal and open the scroll? And when we look to the end of the story and you wonder who can fix it, we see there's an answer and his name is Jesus. <laughs> the Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He was David's root. The Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Can he do it? Can he fix it? Can he bring full and final redemption? Is he worthy of your trust and your hope and your love and your longing? And the answer is, he is. And is it good that we remind ourselves of this in the midst of passages like 2 Samuel 2 to 4 and moments like this one in 2021? It is. Father, we thank you for this word and we pray that you would allow it to have effect in our hearts as we trust in you. We long for your grace. Oh, Father, we cry out right now. Oh, God, we need you. Lord, you've got our attention this morning with this passage. This is the longing of David, the longing of all your people in the Old Testament. Oh, God, would you come? Would you come? Oh, God, we know that the darkness won't stop the light from getting through. God, you're coming. You're, would you come? And Jesus, you have come now. You have come. You've stepped into darkness and you have brought your marvelous light. And the light has shone in darkness and the darkness shall not and cannot overcome it. God, we have seen your glory. Glory is the only gotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And God, we know that Jesus, your redemption. Jesus, we thank you for bringing your peace. You're the Prince of Peace. You're a wonderful counselor. You're a mighty God and you're an everlasting Father. Oh God, we thank you for who you are and what you've done in your life and your death for our sins to bring us peace with you and in your resurrection that we might have new life and hope forevermore. And God, we just want to put our trust in you once again. We trust you, Jesus. You are our hope. But Lord, right now in this moment, we are still longing for your grace. Oh God, we need you still right now here in this moment. And God, we want you to come again. We are ready to see you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We are ready to be with you. We really want your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Oh God, on the behalf of the people of Louisiana, we intercede today. On behalf of the people of Afghanistan, we intercede today. On the behalf of the people who are mourning the loss of their friends and loved ones in Middle Tennessee, we intercede today. On behalf of people who are in ICU right now in hospitals with COVID, we intercede. And on behalf of people who are trying to serve in the midst of all of this virus and lead well, God, we intercede. On the behalf of the brokenness, wherever it exists in our world today, among any person, any nation, God, we are crying out for your grace. And we're hoping in you, Jesus, and asking you to bring about redemption in hearts and lives, but also in our world. And we thank you that we have a promise that you are coming again. May we not be weary of doing good. May we continue to be longing and trusting you for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand as we close in response this morning. And let's just, 
respond to God as he's leading us. If you're here today and you don't have peace with God, you can cry out today for salvation and Jesus can forgive you and save you. But maybe there's just some specific situation, whether in your friend group, your family group, in just the world. And this morning, you just need to remember the hope and new redemption of Jesus and his promise to come again. So let's hope in him as we sing. Prayer counselors coming forward and we're available for you down here if you need to pray with anyone in particular. Let's just give our hearts to the Lord in hope. Thank you again for joining us for today's Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis. We want to encourage you to join us in person for worship soon. No podcast can ever replace the good design of God in gathering in person with other believers for worship in a local church. For more gospel resources and ways to connect with ICC, you can visit us at iccmemphis.com. As we close, we offer a prayer of blessing for you from Romans 15:13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Thanks again for joining us.